Today on the Wet Fly Swing podcast, we've got Jim Teeny back on the show. Today, Jim gives us his three biggest tips on catching king salmon on the fly. Plus, we find out how I spot him, I got him came to be, and how you can see and catch more steelhead this year. Jim is one of the greatest OGs and ambassadors in fly fishing, having started his Teeny Nymph brand in the 1960s and being the one behind creating present-day sinking fly lines. It all stretches back to Jim Teeny. We're going to talk about that today. He is also a good friend of the family, a great guy. So uh, you are going to discover the best color for flies for salmon. You're going to uh, discover Jim's number one tip to know when a steelhead is going to strike. This is a great one. If you can see the fish, he's going to tell you how and when it's going to strike. And we get another great tip on spotting fish. Here we go. One of the best in the business, Jim Teeny from jimteeny.com. How you doing, Jim? Doing good, Dave. It's always good to talk with you. Yeah, yeah, it is. It's always good. I always, I was looking at the last episode, I saw you had a big smile on your face. I feel like you're one of those people that always has a big smile, which is great. And we hear a lot, you know, over the last five years since you were on the podcast, we'll put a link in the show notes to that last episode. I've talked to a lot of people, probably more than anybody else where they've mentioned your name over the years, you know, from whether it's tarpon fishing or, you know, the Midwest or wherever. It seems like Seems like you've traveled all around the world. Is that kind of the case? Have you done a lot of traveling over your time in fly fishing? You know, I've been really lucky. I have done a lot of traveling and, uh, and I, you know, God willing, I want to keep doing it. I, I enjoy, you know, doing trips and hosting trips and putting things together for people to some of the places I've been that we know that are really good. Uh, and that's what I really want to focus on. Yeah. And you just got back, didn't you? Are you leaving on a trip soon? I'm leaving uh, January the 25th, and we're going down to uh, Jurassic Lake in Argentina, you know, for those giant rainbows. And then from there, uh, most of the group is going back to Buenos Aires, and then we're going for three days of Golden Dorado, of which I've never done before. So we're all excited about it. That is so cool. Oh, man. We're really pumped up on this. Man, this is great. And will you, when you're out there, will you be using some of your flies and just like, you know, like in the, in the past you've used for everything? You know what? It's all I've fished with since, since I started our business in 1971. So yeah, I, I mean, I've been there three times more to Jurassic. So this will be my fourth trip. And then the Golden Dorado will be a new experience, but I've got, I've tied up some really cool flies and I know they'll work. Yeah. That's great. Well, I want to introduce you to some of our new listeners because it's been five years. And for those people that don't know who you are and your background, I mean, you know, Teeny Nymph, Teeny Line Company, I mean, everything you, you know, you've kind of done all. In fact, you set the stage for, I think, scientific anglers a lot back in the day before, you know, where we are now with sinking lines is kind of completely different than where we were in the 80s. But you were, uh, a lot of people have attributed uh, the success of sinking lines to you. And so maybe you could talk about that. Let's bring us back to... You know, that first idea, just to, to refresh, where did that, when did that start? Can you give a summary of how teeny lions and nymphs and how that came to be? Well, the teeny nymph came about in uh, May of 1962. And uh, my friend Dan Shocker and I were going to go up to Oregon's East Lake uh, in central Oregon and for the big rainbows, browns, and brookies. And that's where I originated the fly pattern for was May of 1962. Uh, then from there, we went right to Diamond Lake and we did the same thing. We just, just hammered the fish. And so, I mean, it was, it was, uh, and then I kept the fly a secret for nine years, you know, and, and so 
Uh, that was to start with the flies. Now, with the fly lines, we didn't introduce them until actually on my birthday, August 30th, 1983, was when we got our first lines in. But prior to that, five or six years earlier, uh, I contacted Scientific Anglers, which was Bruce Richards then. And I said, Bruce, I said, would you make a line, a shooting head and the running line all one piece for us? I said, I know I could sell that a lot for you guys. And I wasn't even thinking about our company, you know, at the time. And Bruce came back and said, you know, he says, I don't think we can make it and I don't think it'll work. Hmm. And so I just pulled back laid, and I watched technology get better and then reapproached him in 1983. And at that time, you know, he had to private label uh, lines. You had to order at least a thousand a year. So this is a whole new concept for fly fishing. You know, so you didn't have any knot, little, no hinging, no anything. Your line was going to be one piece from the factory. And so uh, they, they said they were trying to warn me and all this stuff. So I put it off for about a month <laughs> or so because everybody was scaring me, you know. <laughs> then I said, I, I said to Donna one morning, I says, I'm going to do it. And she goes, you're going to do what? I said, I'm going to make those lines because we all need them. I mean, they, they will change fly fishing forever. And so our first year, to short story this, our first year we sold almost 4,000. Hmm. I mean, that's a brand new concept. And, and the lines are still the most popular, you know, the T-series and all that. And, the, you know, the, I mean, it just made fly fishing easier for all of us. Yeah, that's it. And it was the idea being was the integrated, it's all one piece, which back in the day, people were cutting up lines and spicing things and using lead core. Um, and so when you made that first line, was that Scientific Anglers that made those first 4,000? Yeah, it was Scientific Anglers, yeah. See, I, I made, that's what I was doing, was cutting and splicing. And then I had the president of uh, 3M come out, you know, uh, and uh, Howard West and fish with me in Oregon. And after that, he goes, well, geez, he says, what do you think of our sinking lines? I said, well, I says, I think they're the best on the market, but I, and we were winter steelhead fishing at the time. And I said, but what you really need to do is have a line that'll sink two to three times faster than your high speed ID. So he went back and sent me the very first uh, samples of the shooting heads in Deepwater Express. And I worked on them, put them on a, you know, a level running line. I tripled my fish hookups just because I could now deliver, get the line down, you know, but, but I still had the knot and splice, but still it was the start of changing fly fishing, you know, for all of us. Right. And that was really a big deal. Right. And then that's what it did. So you had, I mean, what was the biggest breakthrough? I mean, obviously you got the sinking rates, the line uh, sinking rates, right. But also just on the integrated, what, how did that help the hookups? There was there, there wasn't like a uh, an interchange or describe that why it was better hooking up in with fish. Well, Dave, what I did when I first made our lines, uh, I made them all one piece and they were color coded so that the floating line to the head, which with the head was always dark, uh, they were perfectly balanced. But you could visually, as a fly angler, you can see the line coming and you knew when you could roll cast it or you could roll it to the surface single false cast, and then shoot the line back out. And then it was easy to mend. If you needed to mend the floating line, you'd do that immediately after you made your cast. But usually with our T-series and TS-series, a single false cast back is all you need. 
You don't need to go back and forth. And because the weight and the balance, because the lines were perfectly balanced. And on the sinking section, I didn't put any taper. They were straight. So when they went out, they sank evenly. So they were perfectly balanced. And that just changed it for all of us, you know. I mean, and then going, you know, you didn't have tip lag, you know, with the tip being a little bit lighter. And then, and no, they were all the same. And they still are today. Yeah. So are they essentially, you hear the, the name like density compensated a lot. Is that what those were? Is it like the, the density was the same throughout the entire line? Well, it was. And, and when, when our competitor uh, did copy our line or tried to, and they did the, they said density compensated, we had nothing to compensate. It was, we had the line. And honestly, uh, Dave, and I mean this from my heart, if I made those lines better, I would have. Yeah. They're the best out there right now. They're perfect. Yeah. And are those lines still, so right now, because I know a couple of years ago, people were trying to find them and I'm not sure. Are they out there? Could people pick up like the, you got the series, right? The T300, 100, 200 series. Are they out there now? Well, we're out of right now. We're out of T200s and we have T130s. Uh, we're out of, uh, we're getting low on T300s. And then we have, uh, we are out of T400s. We have the TS uh, in stock. We have the TS350 and 450, and we're out of the TS250. I mean, and only the course we have all the sizes in the mini tip. That's our favorite line, really, you know, for lake fishing and stream fishing and whatever for kings, gems, sockeyes, things like that. So, oh, good. And I, I was going to ask you about that with the Chinook. So, with the, with the king salmon, what would be, you know, because Alaska, right? You've done a lot of trips, I'm sure, all over the place, but. What is the line for Alaska if you're heading up for a, a Chinook fishing up there? Well, you know what? This is going to be a little surprising, but when the water is high in Alaska, when I go up with Dave Duncan and Sons and I go up on the Connectock River, if the water is high, the kings will often be in the brackish side water off the main current and they'll pull in there. And then, then there we just nail them on the mini tip. I mean, it's just sinking. It's five feet of fast sinking, but it it sinks nice, and it's just swinging along. And sometimes when it's swinging, you know, you're you're watching your line real close, and then all of a sudden you see this big boil behind wow. behind your line, and and then you feel the tug, and oh my god, it's so exciting, you know. Yeah. But other than that, then when we're when we're fishing Alaska, we're mostly using mostly the t300 like the ts350 the ts450 okay the t400s the little bigger lines like that and and we fish them with a short leader so we only have like uh i'd say maybe three to four foot leader off the end of the line and it just delivers the fly perfect that's it so you have this so we're talking single-handed rods would this be like a for a chinook what would you be using for chinook for the rod well i'm a single-hand guy I just never did do the switch, you know, and I've been able to cover probably 90, 95% of the water that I want to cover. I can do it really good. Even if we're down on the Rio Grande for Sea Run Browns, you know, you can still reach out. My favorite rod that I have, they don't make them anymore, was the one I designed for Temple Fork Outfitters. Oh, yeah. And it was a 10-foot, five-piece, eight-weight that I designed. And I've used that on Steelhead King's. Everything. I mean, the chums is, it's a really nice rod, but see, most of the 10 foot rods are four piece. And then for travel, that's why I made a five piece. And I got a lot of argument against that 
you know, uh, uh, they said, what do you want a five piece? It's unbalanced. I said, nope, I want it for travel. Yeah. And it's so good. It, I mean, it takes down into two feet. Oh, right. So you can put it in with you. Yeah, exactly. That's nice. And it really, really has been a good rod. So I kind of, I'm coveting the one I have. Yeah. You, yeah. You got it. <laughs> and, and, but why the 10 foot? Why not over a, say a nine foot or nine and a half? We have nine foot too. Yeah. I just kind of, I don't know why. I think I got onto the 10 foot rods a little more when I, when we were float tubing and doing lake fishing, just because it, you know, when you're sitting in the water, foot taller. Yeah. And, uh, so I, I think that's it. But Donna, my wife, Donna, she, she loves the nine foot four piece rods that I designed and that's what she uses in lakes, you know, like in a six weight and, and, um, that's cool. Yeah. It's fun. You know, that's awesome. Well, you mentioned, I you know the spade thing, you know, it's interesting because you started out, I mean, my first memory of you was, I, re, I always come back to this because my dad had the shop and uh, I remember like wading across the side channel on the sandy on my dad's shoulders and getting over to the island. And, you know, I think you were there in some of those times, but that was the steelhead, winter steelhead fishing. And, uh, and my dad never got into spay either. Right. But it's really taken over the steelhead game. Like everybody, almost everybody you see is using spay rods. So what was it for you that kept, because my dad really, he, he never got into it either. Why, why did you, did you ever test the waters there or what was the thinking there? Well, you know what? I, I just think that it, your dad and I are old timers. I mean, you know what I mean? We got used to the single hand rod. We were efficient with it and it really, it just does. And I'll, these are the reasons that I love the single hand rod. And it's just my opinion. I love the fight from a fish when you're really fighting them more one-on-one -on -one, rather than having a longer rod do all the work and everything. You know, that's for me. Uh, that's part of the reason. And then, I don't know, I just, uh, I like the control I have with my single hand. Not, not saying that they should be ruled out. Yeah. Because some of the rivers are so small, you just don't want to go there with a, you know, a 11 to 13, 14 foot rod if you're fishing smaller waters. So, uh, but then again, when you get on the Deschutes, that's a wide river. And so you can cover way more water with the spay. You know, so I respect that. I, and I understand that. Today's episode is brought to you by Northern Rockies Adventures, premium fly fishing trips in the heart of the BC Rockies. Premium all-inclusive fishing packages from Vancouver, BC. Daily fly-in fishing trips to get you straight to the action. And the lodges offer private cabins and the utmost comfort. Learn more about this exclusive BC fishing trip at nradventures.com slash wetflyswing. Angler's Coffee roasts a full range of coffee with one goal in mind, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go tea bag option, and a roast sampler, you know Joe at Angler's has you covered. You can head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. That's Angler's, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Let's take it back to the day. Do you remember when you first started fishing the Chinook, what year that was? You made your first Alaska. I always think of Alaska, but I'm sure you fished Chinook other places. But when you made that first trip up there? Well, my first trip to Alaska was in 1975. But I started catching the Kings on a fly rod. I believe it was 1971. And it was on the Kalama River in southwest Washington. And my friend Don Anderson and I were heading up to go fish the Kispiox River in northern British Columbia steelhead. 
So we were, <clears throat> we said we were in training. <laughs> we went to the Kalama nice. River, spotted a few nice steelhead, and we were fishing for them. And this would have been like probably, it had to be in early September, right? And then we, uh, all of a sudden, our hole that we were fishing filled up with these giant king salmon. Oh, wow. I mean, they, they dispersed the steelhead like crazy. I mean, you know, because they don't get along. And so they moved them out. And then all all these kings were there. And most of them were in pretty nice shape. We couldn't keep them off of our fly rods. And we broke a fly rod and we hmm. lost a couple of fly lines. And I mean, it got at the end of the day, we're driving home. And I and I was I said to Don, I says, God, that was a lot of action. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think then that's when my first love for the kings started out since it was 1971 and and then i i mean i just i love to chase them i there's something about them because you can't land them all this not gonna happen but i've been real lucky in my life that i've landed three officially over 60 wow and 18 over 50 geez so i know i it's like so you know like a, a but a king a 30 pounder or 40 pounder they're still big and they're strong but the ones that are a lot active, you know, a lot of times it could be the 12 to 25 pounders, but those big ones, they, they've got the strength and, and I just, I just love the challenge. Yeah. Well, you mentioned the, the spotting. I want to go back to that because we talked about this uh, on our first episode a while back. Um, but the, uh, the ice bottom, I got him. I love, it's a great story, but talk about that a little bit, because I think it actually will help people to think about the amazing stuff you've done over the years. I mean, all the fish you've caught, but the spotting of the fish, especially like steelhead. Talk about that. What, what, where did, first the I spot him, I got him. Where did that come from? Was that something you coined or was that something that came out of the, the New York Times? No, I coined it. And the reason, it was back in um, 1986, scientific anglers had asked me to do a, a video on steelhead fly fishing. And they had asked me, they said, well, where do you want to do it, Jim? Do you want to go to Alaska? Do you want to go to British Columbia? And I said, no, I want to do it all within an hour of my home in Oregon. And so uh, we did it on the, these are the rivers that we did on, although we never mentioned it in the Catching More Sealhead uh, DVD, but then it was a VHS. And uh, it was the Wind, Washougal, and Kalama oh, wow. in South Washington and the salmon and the sandy and the clackamas in Oregon. Yeah. So, and those are the rivers. And, and I don't know, excuse me, I don't know why or how it came out, but I love Polaroid's glasses. They helped me more than anything to learn about fishing than anything I've ever used. You know, they were the tool. And then, and so, and my eyes were good. And boy, I tell you, they were better than they are now, but they're hmm. still good. Yeah. You know, thank God, yeah. thank God for that. But, uh, but I would love, I, sometimes we would just go searching for steelhead and if we didn't see anything, we wouldn't cast because why would you, if there's no fish? Right. So, so then during the, the video and, and we were doing the catching more steelhead, I said, Hey, if I spot them, I got him. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and I really meant it. I yeah. mean, if the fish would hold and allow you to make your presentations, then you had a really good chance of hooking them. Now, some of them, when you make a cast, they spook and they move out and then they're gone. Well, not going to get that one. But the ones that will hold and let you 
you know, drift your flyby and swing it by and everything. Those are the ones that, and then I, and this is really interesting because I want to share this with a lot of people. Yeah. I could tell before a steelhead was going to take my fly, if I could tell if he was interested, because I would see his, his fins start to move a little bit. I, I, they would just move and just kind of like just twitch a little bit. And I tell he was getting excited. And I did that in the video and this one that was across the river on the Kalama. But I could see that he was getting really excited. And I says, I think he's getting ready to bite. And I threw the fly out. And sure enough, here comes my teeny nip down there. Bam. And I got him. <laughs> I mean, it was like, you know, it was just, you learn so much. And I, I and the glasses, Lori's glasses are absolutely, I think for eye protection and for learning about fishing, nothing's better for that. Even for safety and wading, yeah. you know, for you can see where you're going to step or where you're not, you know. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they help. Have you always used one type of lens, like an amber, or do you have multiple? I know you had the teeny glasses too, right? Did you have multiple colored lenses? We used to for years. We were way ahead of all the, the eyeglass companies. Amber was always my favorite. Uh, but we, we used the, uh, not so much the blue or the smoke, unless your eyes are sensitive, but there's a rose and then there's a, a brown polarized. And those are all good. Yeah. But the amber for me, I always said, well, it brightens my day. Right. Because it really does, it does let in more light. And so like in the early morning or late evening, you can see into the water a much longer with a, with an amber lens. Yeah, the amber's good. That's I like too. So, and so go back to the spotting. So what would be, if somebody's listening now, they want to, you know, they're, they're steelhead fishing, you know, it's happening right now. What's your tip for them to spot more fish? Like what, what would you tell them? How do they, because sometimes they're hard to see. You're not going to just see some fish always sticking out, especially if the watercolor isn't that clear. What would you tell them? Well, if the watercolor isn't that clear, you can't always spot them. So then you just have to read and understand the water and, you know, the currents and look and think, okay, well, that looks like a good spot. Then you cast it. But if the, the water is clear and you can see them, then I always try to keep the fish in sight. You know, I don't, I don't you know, like go way upstream and then try to come down, you know, swing the fly down or go downstream and cast up and but I try to keep them in sight, and then I try to estimate, well, where do I need to, to cast so this line will sink and come down and, and present itself to make the best presentation? So I'll, I'll do that, and always trying to keep the fish in my vision. That's really, really important. Gotcha. Just don't keep take it out of your vision. Okay, and so if you spot a fish, you're sitting there, it's in a run, and there's all sorts of different sizes of river, but let's say the water's clear enough to see how would you present the fly? Let's just take an example of maybe one of those rivers you talked about, the Washougal or something like that. What what line would you typically put on of your T-series? And then how would you get that into, because you got this T-nymph, that, that's part of the thing is getting the fly down to and presented right. What would, how would you do that? Well, what I, what I would do is, first of all, I would study the speed of the current and the depth of the water. And then I'd think, okay, well, then I've got to cast up here in order to get down by them. Now, if we're in a pool, say we're on the Washougal, we're in a pool, and then you can see the fish just laying out there and they're spread out and everything like that. We we always went to the mini tip. Then we always would go to at least a nine-foot leader. So it was longer. It wasn't hmm. the short leader. Because when you tried the short leader, the line would be coming down, and you'd see all the fish just kind of move out of the way. And they'd let it go through, and then they'd come back. So then I thought, well, I got to make a longer leader. So I started adding on. And then we found that, you know, nine to 
maybe honestly, we went sometimes up to 10 or 11 foot just added on just so that you had the fly and the leader coming down by the fish. No fly line because just the shadow or the shade of the line might move them. Yeah. And that, and that you know, now if you're in the runs and the riffles or you're in the, you know, the deeper slots, yeah. then a short leader is absolutely the best. And then you just, you got to cast upstream and estimate how it gets down and, and make that presentation. And it's, it's just, it's so much fun can't tell you how much fun it is to do that and i miss it because there's we don't have as many fish around like we used to. no and that's the same for chinook i mean it's really it's tough to think about but alaska is going through some challenges you know it's really scary to think that the chinook fishing right but i mean think about that back in the day uh the duncans when you're fishing up there um i mean what was that like because i don't think the chinook is i think there's even closures up in some of those areas now but what was it like back in the day like how many chinook could you get into you know on a good day I'm going to share something with you, and I wrote about it in my book, uh, Fly Fishing Great Waters. Yeah. Jeff, G, and Sandy and I, one day, the two of us, on our teeny flies and our fly lines, we hooked 77 kings. And I'm telling you, none of them were under 15, and they were all up to over 40. They're right in that bracket range. Next year, another friend of mine and I were, were fishing, and we got dropped off because in between two weeks, they call it the turnaround day where we're leaving oh, and yeah. another group coming in. So we got dropped off on a spot that we, we could fight fish way down river. And we didn't, you know, it wasn't like we needed a boat, right? Yeah. We hooked 93 kings <laughs> in one day. And, and I'm telling you, it was the, I, I just don't know that king fly fishing could ever be better than that. Yeah. You know, I, I just don't think so. But uh, but I am going back. Oh, you are? Uh, with the Duncans, yeah, this year. And here's the deal. What just recently happened, I think a year or two ago, the natives uh, there in the, the, the village, they realized that, hey, we got to do something on our, our kings to protect them. So instead of doing subsistence for six days in a row, then taking a day off, they're doing five days and taking two days off in a row, which really allows the fish to get into the rivers. Plus, they're not doing commercial fishery out from the mouth of the river. And that, that happened last year, and it changed it, and they got a lot more fish in. So we're going up this year, and I'm really excited. I'm going up uh, July the 6th to the 13th with really high hopes that a lot of kings will be back in. But you don't have to hook that many kings to have a great day. No. I mean, if you if you went out and you hooked four to eight yeah. kings in a day, you'd go, my God, this was a I know. great day. I know. Yeah. And even it's kind of like steelhead fishing. Yeah. I mean, you know, in, you know, today, if you hook to steelhead, if you get a chance, I think that's good. If I, you know, I'm, I'm going to be heading up there too. I'm heading up to like the uh, Tojiak uh, area, uh, kind of out of Bristol Bay. So you fish Connectuck, which is kind of a little more further north, right? Maybe talk about that. Where is the Connectuck, and have you fished other areas around Alaska for Chinook? Well, I have, yeah. And see, I had a day, um, uh, Tony Weaver, who lives up in Anchorage, he took uh, my friend uh, Jeff G. and Sandy and I, and before we went to the Duncans, we went to the Kenai, and we fished where the Moose River pours into the Kenai, and uh, it was, a, I think, the Great Alaska Fish Camp. We fished from shore. And I fished with the mini tip because it's kind of a pool, like a brackish area, because the main Kenai was coming in glacial. 
you know, it's kind of that greeny, yep. you know, and it's real cold, but the Moose River was like a tea color. So it was pretty clear and it was warmer, about eight or 10 degrees warmer. So anyway, went out there one day and I did write about this also in my book because it was memorable for me. I hooked exactly 40 kings and beached 20 up to 60 pounds. <laughs> and that was, that will be, I'm sure the best king day on the Kenai. I mean, it was uh, unbelievable. They, they were with the mini tip. You could just move it along in that slower, you know, that slower, softer water. Yep. And with the water being warmer, the kings were, once in a while, you'd see one roll out there. So you knew they were there, but you just didn't know what they were doing. And a few times I broke some off because I was stripping, you know, moving the fly back and moving it back in and then getting ready to lift out of the water. And then a big king would grab my fly and I overreacted. God, <laughs> right. It kind of scares. Yeah. So, so how do you do it? Let's take us to the wild. Let's say you're on one of these rivers in Alaska. You know, there's some kings out in front of you. I mean, how do you present the fly? Let's say you have that mini tip on. Are you Describe how, where you're casting and how you're getting it into the fish. Well, what we do is we use a longer leader. Now, on the Kenai, just because there was a little bit of color, I was only probably using five or six foot. I wasn't using the nine foot, but traditional long leader, if unless the water was clear. And we just cast it and follow the line with our rod tips. See, I'd relax my, we never ice stick. So your arm is relaxed and you're following your line and you're watching. A lot of times you can see your line actually hesitate or move or straight, you know, and at that, that's a signal. You better do something, Yeah. you know, I mean, cause probably a fish has picked it up. We fished also many years ago with uh, Jim Zumbo, Don and I, uh, we were on the Tal Chalitna River. And uh, that was so much fun because we floated down and then we got into it. We just got into a lot of Kings. I mean, I landed two of my 50 pounders back to back. Wow. Guess what I got them on? Huh? Our little ginger number six nymph. Oh, number six. And the mini tip. Yeah. It was just like a little size six, not a, not a big streamer or a, you know, or number two or number four. And, uh, it was just, just, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Don't always think that you have to go the biggest fly in the world to get these fish. Yeah. You know, because a lot of times, like in the springers around here in, in Oregon and uh, in Washington, we catch a lot of them on sixes and fours. A lot of them. Yeah. So you've done some Chinook fishing in, um, I mean, you mentioned some of the steelhead rivers, but you've also done some Chinook fishing in Oregon and Washington? Yes, Absolutely. Uh-huh. Where's been like, what's been a good place to, you know, over the years to find Chinook? Cause I, you hear some people talking about how they're out in kind of the estuaries and lower down things like that, because it, it is a little bit different right here than it is in Alaska. Well, it really is. I mean, the Nestucca river and three rivers are good rivers, you know, for the spring. And they also get a fall run. The Trask river is where I really honed in on the Trask back. And I think, gosh, I think it was 1985 when Steve Posey, who was, you know, with the Lamaglass rods. Do you remember Steve? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, he passed away now, but he took a, a this is a really, I'm going to make it a real short story, but it's a great story. Yeah, sure. So he took, uh, grabbed a drift boat. He says, come on, Jimmy, let's go fish, fish the trash for the, uh, the fall kings. So I said, sure. So we went down there, put in the boat and we're drifting. We went down, uh, we were, people were on the banks. And we were talking to everybody. No, we haven't done any good. No, we haven't done any good. Then we came down just below the hatchery 
on this one stretch, and there were two guys fishing. And of course, how are you guys doing? Well, we're hooking some fish. And we went, wow, that's great. And then one of the guys hooked a fish, and he said, would you guys, would you guys kind of keep this water and you know stay here, and then while we fight this fish downstream? And of course, Steve and I go, sure. <laughs> so, so we got we got out, got out of the drift boat. And, uh, while the time they were down there fighting them, I hooked five and landed three. And the biggest one that I did keep, it was 43 pounds. Oh, wow. That was the kickoff to fly fishing the Trask river. I mean, for, for Kings, I mean, it was like, holy mackerel, you know? And, um, but that was, that was the learning. Now I know they're in the Wilson. I've got a few in the Wilson, but I've also caught some in the Kilchis and, uh, and the, and people say they're in the Miami too. I haven't haven't got a king in the Miami because usually we fish just in the Miami for the chum salmon, you know, for that window. Yeah, and that's really fun. If nobody's ever done that, that's a great trip. Yeah, you that's know, right. you don't keep them, but but you have more action than you can handle. That's right. That's right. Nice. So I guess back to Alaska. So you're heading back. What do you expect that trip will be like? Or what's your expectations on that one? You're heading back. There's probably won't be as many salmon as maybe the last time you were there. But what do you think it'll be like? <clears throat> well, you know what? I'm going with my grandson, Garrett Stauffer. Oh, wow. And he's 28 now. And uh, he says, Papa, I want to go on a big trip with you every year. And so he's. we're going together. And I think, I honestly, I know we're going to get into the chums. I know we're going to get into the sockeyes. Uh, because it's the perfect week oh, to be up. I mean, if you go a week earlier, you're mostly going for the Cromer Kings, but they are, they still come. They still will be in our week. Maybe some will have a tint of color, but the sockeyes and the chums will be thick. And that rut has never faltered on that river. And now with the, the changes that they're doing, I think we're going to have some great king salmon fly fishing. Yeah, that's it. So, And the Connect Talk is kind of up in the... Well, what, where would you describe that? It's up out of Bethel or what part of the Alaska is that? Well, we fly, we fly to Bethel and then we fly about an hour to Quinnahawk. So we do fly from Anchorage to Bethel, then Bethel to Quinnahawk. And then they pick us up in their jet sleds. And then we go up 18 miles up to the base camp. And then every, every day you can, you know, uh, you can go and fish some of the good waters. And we always, during the King run, you always fish down lower and they have some beautiful rainbows. That's where the leopard rainbows really, I think that terminology really uh, struck, you know, back then. So Right. Yeah, you got rainbows too. That's the cool thing is you got all the salmon, but then you have the leopard rainbows and everything else going on there, which is great. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really is. Nice, nice. You got some big trips coming. So you're still, I mean, and, I, and I'm trying to think you're, I mean, you definitely, it sounds like you're not slowing down at all from all your stuff. Do you feel like traveling, you've never gotten tired of that? You kind of enjoy always these getting ready for these trips? You know, I really do. I, you know, and I think, I think Donna is going to be up for going with me if we go down to Mexico because the last November we did a couples trip, not this one, but the, the one before we had so much fun and we caught so many different kinds of fish and uh, we're going to uh, host a trip, you know, what we'll, we'll set up the days coming up. And then, then also the Bahamas. I mean, Donna managed the Andros Island Bonefish Club for nine seasons down there. Oh, wow. And so she knew everybody and she knew the best guides. And I mean, she really ran a tight ship there. And I mean, I think sometimes they resented her because she was making sure everybody got paid, but you know, they were working, but yeah, but anyway, it was, 
but learned a lot about it. And there, it's really a nice operation. So we're probably going to go in that direction somewhere down in the Bahamas. But then, then my trips, like I've got a trip, I'm, but there's only can be seven of us on the trip. And, um, it's down to Tierra del Fuego to the headwaters of the Rio Grande river that, uh, for the sea run German Browns. And then coming back, we're going to do one week there and then coming back and doing a week at Jurassic Lake for the giant rainbows. I mean, last year when we did that, we were, we were on, uh, it was in January. Now, now know that that's their summer. That's the middle of their summer. So they're just the opposite of us. In our group last year, there was a 22 pounder, a 21 and a half pounder, 18 pounder, uh, one or two 17s and a couple 16 pounders landed, but they averaged about eight to 12. And what is the, and use the mini tip there for those? Yes. The mini tip we used our, well, sometimes some of the guys will use a floating line because sometimes you can see them, but I, I use the uh, mini, mini tip and then a line that we don't have anymore, but we're, you know, was what we called our phantom tip. And it was the five foot, very slow sinker. I have one left and I've been using that and it, it just kind of just barely gets you down a little bit. But the mini tip was good, was as consistent. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's right. And, and the mini tip, what was that tip? So describe how long is that mini tip versus, say, the normal? It's only five foot. And it's a, an improved weight forward taper with five foot of fast sinking. And uh, so the line's like a goldenrod color. It's really beautiful. And then the tip is black. And so that's kind of how it, it works, you know? But it's a nice line. It's our most versatile line that we have. But if you needed to get down, then you'd go to the T-Series or the TS. But other than that, it's perfect. Togiak River Lodge is the Alaskan adventure every fly fisherman dreams of. The lodge specializes in remote and exclusive fishing trips for all five species of salmon, plus rainbows, dolly varden, and much more. Togiak is the only lodge with access to 30 plus miles of river, the best guides, the best boats, and lots of fish with little pressure. I'll be heading up there this summer, so check in with Jordan and the crew right now to find out what they have available. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash Togiak to learn more right now. That's Togiak, T-O-G-I-A-K, to discover that wilderness experience you've been looking for. So when you're going up back to the the Alaska, so you're going up there. If somebody's going up new to an area they don't know and they're they're trying to find Chinook, what's the tip there to find some of these fish? If if maybe there's not a ton of Chinook in the system, well, you know what, um, I would welcome anybody that wanted to ask me any questions. You know, to come to our site and and honestly, I'm I'm more than happy to help someone that wants to learn or or know a little bit more about technique or whatever. So going up to Alaska, uh, I, you know, the Kenai's up and down. I mean, the run's been down and the Susitna and see, we fished Willow Creek. And oh, got you did? King. Yeah. Yeah. And I hammered them. When was that? Was that a long time ago? Yeah, it was a long time ago with Tony Weaver. And he took me up there one day cause he lives in egg. Come on, Jimmy, let's go fish Willow Creek. I mean, I don't know. I think I land, I think I, and just for the time that we fished, I think I landed six or seven Kings. I mean, it was really good. And this is right off the road, right? Yeah. And then um, I know there's other places. I fished the Nushigak. I fished the Malchatna. Um, the Kings, I'm just going to warn everybody. Yeah. Don't go after them unless you've been doing some exercise. Oh, really? 
Oh my God. I mean, they're, they're, they're really strong, yeah. but you know, like pound for pound, there's probably no salmon that's stronger than a chum salmon. Oh, really? They're powerful when they're fresh. And when that's what we're going to get into them, uh, up with the Duncans this year, some of them will be so chrome bright that you have to tilt them a little bit to see, well, is this a sockeye or is this? Oh, a, no kidding. Yeah. To see even, even begin to see a bar. And they're aggressive. They're great biters, great fighters. And when they first come in, uh, Brad Duncan told me one time, he says, well, Jimmy, let's keep, you know, we're going to keep some sockeye. We're going to have them tonight. Let's keep a chum or two and we'll compare. And when we did keep a chum, a lot of people said, well, this is even better maybe. And the meat was orange. Hmm. I mean, so it was just like. They're good. Oh yeah. It was, they were delicious. There was no fishy taste or anything. So it was just kind of. You learn a lot, and gosh, you know, I, I've been doing fly fishing now since I was 12, but I'm I'm still learning. Yeah, I'm you're still, still learning. I'm still learning. That's so good. And, and so when you're up there on this Duncan trip, you're going to, will you be casting out there and on, on the, when you're, you're fly swinging through, will you be, you you might catch a Chinook, you don't even know what you're going to catch? Is that kind of how it looks? Or are you more spotting some of these fish? Uh, sometimes you spot them, uh, you really spot the chums and the sockeyes, and so one of the things I'd like to pass on to anybody that is going to go to Alaska and fish for the sockeyes is don't wade. Don't get out in the water because their travel lanes are real close. They fish the, the chum and the sockeye and the pinks. They'll come up really close to the river, you know, the shoreline. Yeah. So if you, if you are standing at the shoreline, when they come to you, they're going to go out around in the deeper water. Hmm. And then they'll come back in when they pass you. And after a while, they'll move back in. But don't break their travel lane. Stand back. And when you see them coming, because oftentimes you'll see nervous water. And you can look downstream and you'll see the water just kind of move a little bit. That's like bone fishing. You know, it's like, here they come. <laughs> you know, right. we're, we're all lining up. And, and the mini tip is absolutely perfect for that. And that type, when they're coming up in schools, you don't really need to have a long line, uh, a leader, just a four footer is perfect. And it doesn't have to be exactly four feet. You know what I'm saying? But yeah. right in there could be three, could be five, but right in that, that area, that's pretty good. And then we fish sizes sixes and fours. And our number one color has always been the hot pink. Oh, hot pink. But. The hot green, like the chartreuse, yep. is also good. The ginger, which is the white, that's really good. And then our chili, which is red, that's really good. And then sometimes we'll get them on the black. But you, if you just say, okay, well, I'm going to just take one color, you would take the hot pink. That hot pink is is deadly. And we tie it up with a blue head. So it's hot pink with a blue head. I think it looks like a candy bar to them. Right. (laughs) And do you, and is that hot pink fly work for all the Pacific salmon and maybe other species? Yeah, I actually won the, uh, the Pacific Rim saltwater fly fishing championships years ago in British Columbia with our hot pink, uh, number two leech. And I was fishing then with, uh, with Tim, uh, Ray Jeff. Oh yeah. And then, uh, Steve Ray Jeff was there and Brian O'Keefe and I went up and I, I thought when, when we were going up uh, to fish, it was going to be in the saltwater, and I thought it was getting. And there was twelve of us. I thought it was the U.S. against Canada, and Brian Chan was there, you know, from from Canada. So anyway, 
we get up and it was a two-day tournament, but the first day, Tim wasn't feeling well. He was just getting better and everybody else was out further. And I says, I says, Tim, don't worry about it. Let's just fish in close here and let's go over to that rock pile and catch some sea bass. What You know, the black bass, but mm. they didn't catch, but we hammered about 20 each. And then the next day was the last day of the tournament. And then uh, Brian O'Keefe was leading it because he thought he, it was a terrible fishery. Let me just tell you, out of the 12 good anglers for two days, there were only six fish landed totally. Wow. Total. I mean, think about that. That's nothing. So anyway, so the, the beginning of the second day, Brian O'Keefe, he lands another, another uh, silver, but one was, I think, six, and the other one was about seven. And then Brian Chan got one about nine pounds. And then one of the other guys got one was about, I don't know, four or five pounds. And so I got, we got down. This is exciting for me because <laughs> I just went up there to be with my friends. Okay. We got down to the last hour, which I didn't know at the time. And I thought, well, heck, I'm using this chartreuse. And all I had, I had really a big one follow it, but it, he was too close to the boat so I didn't get him. So I opened up my fly box. I looked in there and there was this hot pink leaf. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't know a salmon that doesn't <laughs> like the hot pink. I put it on in a matter of minutes. I land this one that was like four and a half pounds. We got it in, registered, radioed it back, released it. And then a few minutes later, I get a 12 pounder. So now I've got the biggest and the most weight. I won gold. Really? I, I won the tournament. And, and the guy the guy came back from the radio. He goes, you've got three more minutes to fish. And I looked at Tim and I says, I'm done. Yeah. And Tim says, I think you won the tournament. And I did. And Bryant O'Keefe, he won second. So we're driving back home together and we've got first and second in the tournament. Oh, wow. And was this like a stillwater tournament? No, it was the saltwater. We were in the ocean. Oh, this is the ocean. Yeah, yeah. Gotcha. I think it was like Langara Lodge, I believe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see. You know, it was on, you know, like Prince of Wales Island or something like that. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, but it but it was it was really honest to God. I just I never thought, you know, that I would win it, but I wished I would have put that hot pink on sooner. Yeah. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Know. I'll remember that. So the hot pink is a good fly. So if you're gonna catch a Chinook, a hot pink would be a good color to use. Oh yeah, you you'll do really good. Originally when I started king fishing on the Kalama. Black was the number one color. You didn't need anything else. And it was deadly. But now now that we fish, you know, we get them on hot pink. We'll get them on ginger, which is the kind of the whitish color. Uh, we'll get kings on orange. Uh, and we'll get kings on the chartreuse or the hot green. But I want to warn people, if you're chum fishing, pink salmon fishing, sockeye fishing, they don't like orange. You know, I'm just telling you, I'm nailing them on the hot pink and I put on an orange just to see and they let it go by and they let it go by. Right. And then I go back to the hot pink and bam, I got a fish, got yeah. a fish, you know. Right. It's really interesting, you know. So I, I don't I don't know that they see colors like we do, but I think they can tell tones and different things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And describe the, the, the teeny nymph a little bit for those that don't know. What What is it's a, essentially... I mean, you think about some of the, uh, one of the best flies in history, the trout fly is the pheasant tail, right? Is, is uh, maybe the greatest fly ever, but you've got a sim, it's similar, right? In some ways. 
Well, it, the whole fly is all tied with the ring neck pheasant tail feather. And we had a single body, a double body. Then we had a leech as we had added on. But I started out with a single and double body, you know, back in the six, early 60s. And then I don't, I'm sure you know that your dad and I on the Sandy River back in 1978, we landed, I think it was 97 steelhead in a couple of months, winter runs really? on the team. We tried to get to 100, but we didn't make, <laughs> you didn't make it. We put on a clinic. I mean, we were at the slaughter hole, you know, below where Marmot Dam used to be. Oh, yeah. Your dad and I, we were like like two kids <laughs> on the river. I mean, we had so much fun. Yeah. And it was it was really great. Doug and I just enjoyed each other and huh. and still do. Right. So. Yeah, that's really awesome. Yeah, the slaughter hole. That was back in the day. Marmot Dam now is gone, so I'm sure I'm not even sure if that's really a a good run anymore. But it used to like just fish used to kind of keg up there at the bait in the slot there. During that year, so 1978, when we were coming down off the height, you know, the steep bank, you could look out in the water, and I, I'm telling you, I think sometimes there were six to eight hundred steelhead in there, and so we couldn't wait to get down that bank, wait across the river, and then fly fish from the other side. It was just unbelievable. And your dad told me, and, and he said, Jim, he says, we better enjoy this because I don't think we'll ever see this ever again. And unfortunately, your dad was right. Yeah, that's true. So tell me this. Have you ever been on a trip and gotten tired of catching fish? You've caught so many fish. I don't think so. No. Because I always think of like challenging, like how do you challenge yourself? You got these, you got all these. I mean, you've caught, like talk about that a little bit because you've got this fly that's caught, how many fit, how many different species has the TNF have you caught around the world? Well, I don't know. We've got shark and bonefish and barracuda and uh, permit. And I mean, honestly, if it's swimming, we got a really good shot at it. Yep. And why is that? Why do you think that is? Because it's a, the fly is pretty, um, I mean, it's like you said, there's not a lot to it. It's pheasant tail dyed different colors. Why, why do you think it's so effective? I just think the profile, and I don't think it duplicates anything. And it's so natural looking. I think it's just, it it just looks like something that if they're curious, that's what they're, they're going to pick it up, you know? So I think I got really lucky on, on the pattern and, and, um, you know, I just, the ringneck pheasant tail feather is really a great durable feather, you know? So for all the fly tires out there, um, it's something you shouldn't, uh, overlook. I mean, it's just the, the pattern. The pattern works, and by gosh, as long as it's working, I'm fishing. Yeah. Hey, do you ever do the do the natural, uh, just like the brown, the natural color without dyeing it? Yes. The natural is the original, and sometimes I go back to the natural and just hammer them. So, you know, but antique gold, I love antique gold. I love the insect green, and then, of course, the black. And those are the colors that we use for trout. Like, so you go black, natural, antique gold, insect green. Uh, those four colors are, they're the best summer steelhead colors and they're the best trout colors. Gotcha. Okay. And we're coming up now, it's kind of in the holiday season. We've got uh, around the corner of the show season. Do you, um, you, I mean, you used to go to some of the shows. Did you love going out to all the, the outdoor shows, the fishing shows? Did you used to go to a lot of those? Donna and I were actually road warriors. We, we did shows (laughs) Honestly, I think we did them for over 45 years. Oh, wow. You did. Yeah. We did. We would trap and the, our group of people, you know, we, 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 you just became like a family, you know, and you'd travel. 
And we did it. We did them down in Phoenix and Los Angeles and San Mateo and Sacramento and Salt Lake City and Denver and Spokane and uh, Seattle and Portland. I mean, just everywhere. But we about, I think about six or seven years ago, we just said, you know what? It's a lot of work. We've paid our dues yep. and we're not doing them anymore. Yeah. You know, and we haven't done them for a while. And it wasn't that we didn't enjoy it. And, um, but that's great. Yeah. I think we, we did it. You did. No, I know. I, I, I asked that because I mean, I've been doing them. I, I really enjoy them too. I think it's part of it is just talking to people and meeting oh, sure. old friends and stuff. And you've talked to, I mean, over your time, like I said, at the start, there's been so many people that have, you know, made note of knowing you and fishing with you. But I mean, how many, if you think about all the places right all around the country, all the people, you know, how has that been? What's that been like being in the fly fishing industry for so long now? Like, is it just, do you look back and think like, wow, that's pretty amazing what, what you've done? Well, you know what? It was kind of like a childhood dream, I guess. Once, I mean, not, not when I was young, young, but once I got to the point where, you know, like, can, I thought, well, maybe I could do this as a business because our fly was so deadly and it was originally just for trout. And now what I'm really most proud of, I thought I'd be known for the teeny nip, but I believe that I think when I'm gone, I'm going to be known for the fly lines. Yeah, you will. How it changed the industry, you know, and, and for everybody. Uh, but the journey uh, way back in the beginning was really, really fun and enjoyable. And it seems to have changed a little bit now. And I mean, maybe it's just because we're all getting older and everything like that, but the sport is still there. Yeah. The sport definitely. just as good as it was before we got started. And so for anybody that wants to get into fly fishing or give it a try, it's a lifetime sport. It's something that everything, our grand, you should see our grandkids fishing. Yeah. They're into it. They're predators. Yeah. <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. God, so good. Dave, do you remember the remember the time with you with your brothers and your dad and I? We all went to to Barnes Butte Lake. Oh yeah, Prime. Yep. You remember that? Do you have the photo? Oh yeah, that was right. That that photo of yeah, we all had all the the panfish yeah. and that was okay. Yeah, that was your that was the deal. Now, what was that lake? Was that something uh, a private lake or I don't even remember. It was so long. I was probably like four or five years old. It was a private lake, and but it's no longer available to people because. The owners had sold it, but back then, uh, Roger Hudsmith owned the lake, and uh, and he and he would let us fish there. And there were bass and bluegill and trout that he put in there. And he originally put the bluegill in, but there were some big bluegill, lots of bass, lots of action. And I love that photo of the four of you guys just lined up, you know, each holding up a fish. It was really it's it's yeah. a memory, you know. Oh yeah, then the photo out of all the photos. There's a few that stick out and, you know, and that's one of them. That's definitely one that we have around the house. That's just a cool. Memory. I know. Well, tell me this, Jim, I want to take a couple more questions before we kind of start to take it out of here, but you did this thing. I mean, like you said, you've back in, we're talking seventies doing this. When did you know that you had this thing you were going to make fly fishing your business was, what was that like? And when did you know? And then what was that feeling like? Well, back in 1965, I took over and owned and operated the Academy Theater in uh in Montevella on on 78th and Stark Street and it was during the the last year that I uh we were fishing on the Olympic Peninsula Don Anderson and I were were there and we met some lawyers and they were from Portland and 
He said, you ought to try to patent the fly. <laughs> so this would have been, you know, back in 1970. And then in 71, I started the business. And so I kept the theater uh, for uh, the last year. And then I started the fly business. And we didn't start it until July 1 of 1971. And during the six months, we'll see July is not a good time to start a fly fishing business. But during the six months to the end of the year, I did $1,800. And that's like $300 a month, right? Yeah. And I thought to myself, there's a business here. <laughs> that's it. You made I, some money. I just, I, I mean, I thought there's a business here. That's and it. And so that's when I sold the theater. Uh, got enough money to start the business, and then the rest has been history. Oh, wow. The rest is history. That's so cool. So you knew, and that's really awesome because I think like the space I'm in, like the online, it's the same thing when you go back to it. When you make your first dollar online, you realize like, wow, somebody gave me money for this thing. And then you just realize like, oh, I could probably do this again. I could replicate it, right? I could scale this. Is that? And that's kind of what you did. You scaled it fast though because- after that, when was that from 71 when you started July and then you sold those first thousand lines? Was that, uh, that was a, a few years later. That was 1983. Yeah. So you had 12 years. Exactly. And one thing I'd like to say to you, Dave, uh, what you're doing for these podcasts and for our sport is pretty awesome. Yeah. You are making a difference and, uh, people need to know that uh, this is how people can learn and advance themselves and. Uh, get more familiar with new techniques. So we want to applaud you for that. Yeah, no, thanks. I appreciate that, Jim. It's been, you know, it's been one of those things where, you know, my dad was obviously a huge influence on me. He was everything, you know, I mean, back in the day. And, and when I started this, you were, you know, gracious enough to be one of my first guests. If you look back, I think you were episode number five. Wow. Before we had any listeners, right? Barely, we were just starting out. And, and now we're up to episode 550. And I've interviewed over 600 people now of some of the you know, biggest names around the world. And, uh, and so, yeah, it has been this amazing journey and, and it is about helping people. And now we have a travel program. So we're traveling around the country. I'm meeting up with listeners. Uh, and it's just been this thing, right? I think that's how we're doing it. It feels, it's always been a good space though. I think the people that are in fly fishing are in it for the right reasons. Do you feel that's, there's a lot of truth to that? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a passion and a love, you know, and it isn't always about that you have to catch big numbers or big fish. It's the fact you're out there and, and you know, you, you do want to catch fish and you are trying, but you're you're at peace with yourself and everything. You yeah. know, you're just enjoying it. Yeah, that's awesome. Nice. Well, I think, uh, and there's probably lots of questions. I mean, I think the lines obviously are something, um, there's lots of lines out there now, lots of different things. But I'm, I, like I said, I'm heading up to Alaska. So if I was going to be getting up there up to fish for these kings, you're telling me I should be bringing up uh a mini tip or a, a T uh, three fifty or something like that. That's kind of the range. Yeah. A mini tip and maybe uh, like a, a TS three fifty or, or four fifty. Those are longer lines. <clears throat> Excuse me. Those are a hundred foot and the head is 30. So you can use them on a switch rod or a single hand rod. And I'm not so sure they even wouldn't, wouldn't work on your spay. Oh, right. Yeah. They're a full hundred foot line. Okay. How long is the line? It's a hundred feet total. So you got 30 foot ahead and 70 feet of uh, floating. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's a full line. Yeah. 
Nice. So yeah, I think, uh, and I, I'm pretty excited about it. You know, we're, we're heading up there and it's going to be, you know, again, it's just like a journey. It's kind of an experience checking out a new place, see, you know, Alaska. What, what is it? You know, it's Alaska. You've been up there a lot of times. What is the one thing that keeps you going back other than the fish? Cause you get the fish. Do you love the whole experience of the towns and the, the, it sounds like the Duncans, that's not a lodge, right? That's kind of remote river camp. No, yeah, it's a river camp. And I mean, it's very comfortable. You know, they, they've actually got toilets. And oh, it is, shop. right. You know, I, I mean, literally, it's a really, it's an amazing base, you know, river camp. And, uh, but it's just, you know, what's the people? It's the sharing of, like right now uh, in our lives, especially for Donna uh, and I, uh, when we go fishing now, it isn't about us anymore. It's about our grandkids or our friends. I mean, if they catch fish, that's more important to us than us catching fish. We've hit that pinnacle where, like, we don't always have to rack them up. Yeah. You know, it's like watching your grandkids uh, land a Chinook on a fly rod is, like, really good. <laughs> yeah, it is. No, that's what it's all about, I think, for sure, the family and friends. So, okay, well, let's take it out of here with our, this is our mentor shout out today. And I'm thinking about some of the people I know you've must, even though you've been a mentor for many over the years, I'm sure you've probably had a few mentors, but this is, uh, and then we'll get into a couple of little tips to get out of here. But um, so who is somebody you think back, maybe somebody that isn't even with us anymore, that was a big influence on your, you know, your journey in the last, however it's been 50 years in fly fishing. When I got into to fly fishing, when I got interested in it, it was uh, the late Joe Brooks. He went down to Argentina and I, then I saw pictures of him holding up an 18 pound brown trout and then uh, two big brookies. And I thought, man, I want to go down to Argentina. And so it was in 1974, my first big trip of my life was down to Argentina and, and down there with Jim Hodson. And we stayed almost four weeks. Wow. I mean, it was just unbelievable trout fishing. We caught Atlantic salmon, brook trout, rainbow, brown trout. And it was really, really good. Uh, but my dear friend that I just love is John Randolph. And he was editor of the Fly Fisherman magazine for many years until he retired and took that magazine to the top. And John and I, we've archery hunted together uh, in uh, Oregon, in Idaho, in New Mexico. And uh, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. And we fly fish together. He's one of the finest people, and I believe to be the most knowledgeable person in our industry. I mean, above everybody else, and another person is Lefty Cray. Oh, and Lefty. Lefty Cray, for Donna and I, was like father to us. He was just a great person, and he came out and stayed with us, and we actually, we actually uh, this will be interesting, but we actually took Lefty one day up on the Sandy River and we waded across to the island. Oh, no kidding. So Lefty Cray's been on the island. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Lefty wow. was down there. Said it was really, really, I mean, you know, I mean, back then he was able to do it and everything. And, but, uh, but we just enjoyed him. He was a really an ambassador for fishing and for fly fishing. Yeah. And had always had a joke a minute. He was good. Yep. I'm going to tell you. I, I said to Lefty one day, I says, I said, Lefty, I says, do you know what still fishing is? And he goes, no, Jim, I don't. He says, what is it? And I said, well, that's what you're doing after I got my limit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Nice. And he let out a laugh. Did he? And he goes, that's a good one, Jimmy. I'm going to use it. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, he was... Yeah, he, he's one of those guys. We had an episode, um, I, can't, I think it was episode, one of our big episodes we did. I never had Lefty on, but we did a tribute episode to Lefty, and I had a guy that, that wrote a book about him, and he told some of the stories. And we've heard a lot of people tell the stories of Lefty because he's, you know, it's one of those guys you can never replace, you know, just from Absolutely. That. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so Lefty was there. And then, so, and John too, I think John Randolph, we're going to have him on soon as well. So I'm excited about that. Fly Fisherman, you're right, has become... It's been the top magazine for a long time. And even now with magazines, you know, going out, going away and, and things changing with the digital market, Fly Fisherman, I think, is still going strong. I think I've talked to them recently, so they're doing great. Nice. So, yeah. And, you know, uh, Dave, if, if anybody that's listening or has interest, uh, uh, contact me, you know, yeah. at, at my site if they would like to do a, a, a hosted trip with us. Okay. Because, I mean, that is something that, that I really enjoy. And we take the time out to make sure that everybody has a good time and we go at the best times and we're going to the best places. Yeah, that's perfect. All right. All right, Jim. Well, I'm going to let you get out here. So give me this. So I'm going to be, again, heading up. There's going to be other people going to Alaska. We're in the Chinook water. We know there's some Chinook there. What are what are three tips you would give me if I had never caught a Chinook and I'm like just sitting there like, okay, I want to get, and I'm going to be thinking about you when I, when I hook up one of these fish. What, what would you be, what would you tell me? Well, you know, you just read the water. If you can't see them, you just got to read the water and understand it. And the definite way to get them, if there's strong current, is to use one of the sinking lines, you know, to, to get the down and follow the line as it's drifting along with your rod tip. Don't keep your rod tip up high. Keep it lower and follow it along because that way you feel better. You can be very sensitive to your line so that when there's a hesitation, whether it's a rock, a leaf, or a fish, you can feel it. Yeah. So what I'm saying is follow it down through. And uh, and if you can see them, then stand and adjust accordingly. And don't be afraid to change flies, okay. change color. Because I mean, they might be on one color for a little bit, and then they go off. And then you put on another color, boom, you get another one. And hang on and have a great trip up there. Let me know if we can help you. I will. All right, Jim. Well, thanks for all your time today. I definitely appreciate catching up and we'll have to catch up with you again sooner and we'll, we'll see what, where the, your travels are taking you next and uh, we'll take it from there. Well, thanks so much, Dave. You take care. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com and please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 